G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast Summer Edition as we creep closer to the start of the AFL season. We've got a heap to talk about today, the start of the Marsh Cup pre-season series, round three of the AFLW season. Um, a whole lot of uh, life matters, or one very special life matter that uh, we feel we should talk about today. Our uh, dip back into yesteryear and uh, having a look at the music, movies and TV of a particular year in the dim distant past. And of course the world famous rant off, as I say, a very good morning to my co-host Mark Fine. How are you Fine? I'm well, good morning to you Rowan, good morning to our listeners, I frustrated myself this morning parking the car for this very podcast. Why is that? You know, I feel having had a license now for 36 years, my goodness, I've never lost my license, I've never been in a bingle so bad as to need to give my details to another driver, so I've got a pretty good driving record, but there is one thing I am hopeless at. And today, I think I did it worse than ever before. Reverse parking? Reverse parking on the wrong side of the road, on a one-way street, when I'm fine at reverse parking as per normal. But when it's a one-way street and you have to park on the right-hand side of the road, I am terrible at it. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, well, not all of us are great at all skills. Uh, We, like I said, got a lot to get through. Uh, You want to mention our wonderful sponsors? Look, I do, but before... I get to the sponsors. You were, interestingly, a one of the speakers at a free Julian Assange rally. Now, I don't know a lot about I Julian. I don't know a lot about. I know about WikiLeaks. I know he was in a Bolivian embassy or Peruvian embassy or Ecuadorian. I knew it was some embassy in England, and I now know that he's. I think facing criminal action in the US or in Britain or something, but I'm not all over it, but I do know that there, it, it is a passionate cause for many people and probably for yourself because you were chosen to be one of the speakers at a free Julian Assange rally, I believe. Well, it's something I feel strongly about. I think there's some basic uh, principles of justice uh, which he's been denied. I mean, in short, the US is seeking his extradition from Britain to face uh, very, very serious charges, which could see him locked away for something like 175 years. Um, and I think it's beholden upon our government and uh, the media, certainly, to campaign a lot harder for his uh, return to his country of birth. Now, it's a, it is a complex issue. We're not going to go into it here, but I do feel strongly about it, and I was quite honoured to be asked to speak at that rally, and um, I actually tweeted the video of the speech, so if you're sufficiently interested, you can get on my Twitter feed and check that out. I'll tell you something else you should check out, Finey, our wonderful sponsors. I am always up for a good burger, but particularly 
at this time of the year. Why? Because, I don't know, I just get a feeling that as summer is eking away, I want one or two last great summer burger experiences. That means getting the burger, either sitting on the, really, it's really nice there at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, to actually grab the burger and jump out onto the benches out the front. Just on a really warm night, maybe my favourite, the can of Passiona. But what is the name of the establishment? It's at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. It is a beacon to lovers of great burgers. It is Andrews. I think we've gone through the product, but I'll say it one more time. The best burger, 81 years of serving it, Every the first bite is great. It's, it's a welcome friend, but the beauty is, unlike some other burgers, right to the very last bite, you're just appreciating a well-made Aussie burger. Here, here, and I don't know about you, Fonny, but every time I chomp down into a fresh Andrews hamburger, I immediately start thinking, you know what, I should really renovate my house. <laughs> do you? I do. That would be a regular thought running through your head, because I know you're a big fan of the burgers. West Point Constructions, or West Point Properties, run by Nick Spartels in the very same area, Albert Park, South Melbourne, the real burgeoning part of town with Port Melbourne, Middle Park thrown in, all the way down the beach, down to Brighton and beyond. Yeah, I know the properties there are worth a fair bit of money, but a lot of them are worth a lot more, thanks to West Point Properties, Nick Spartels, fantastic building, eye to detail, and a great bloke to boot. But that is not all, Finey, because uh, as mentioned last week, we have a new sponsor on board, and thanks once again to them. They are online retail and auction company, Grays Online, who offer a huge range of consumer and industrial goods direct from manufacturers, and they have an amazing offer for footyology listeners, which is still on, Finey. We mentioned it last week. If you listen to us and you don't avail yourself of this offer, you are mad, Finey. We've got detailed links you can find in our episode description this week to a couple of fantastic offers on some very special cars. There's a 2018 Ford Mustang Dick Johnson Limited Edition and a 2003 HRT Peter Brock Monaro. Check out the details of both. You'll find them in our episode description. Two amazing cars any motorsport fan would be absolutely stoked to own. But that isn't it. Finally, Grays Online sell a lot more than cars. There's a huge range of stuff from $2 bottles of wine to $2 million cranes, everything in between, TVs, homewares, white goods, power tools, nearly all their auctions starting at just $9. Now, here is the deal, footyology listeners. Jump on Grays Online, have a look at what they're offering, then for any purchase over $50, They'll give you $30 off just by using either of the following two voucher codes. ROCO for me, R-O-C-O, and FINEY for you, FINEY, F-I-N-E-Y. And uh, there's going to be a little popularity contest going on there. I think you are slightly in the lead at the moment. Just put either of those codes in at checkout. Use it by the end of February. So that's the key. You've only got another, what, five days. It is a leap year, so that gives you an extra day. You will get $30 off any purchase of more than $50. Yes, I kid you not. Buy something that would ordinarily cost $55, you'll get it for $25. And it's let a- me tell you, there's so much in that in that sweet spot. I went to Grays Online, and I actually have 
probably be making a couple of purchases this very day. I was going to do it on the weekend, but there are some beauties. Around fifty four ninety five. I saw a couple of rippers, and I thought, are they going to let me do this? Because that'll take it down to $25. It's and too as, good to be true. And as it was, they were a fantastic value. I'm talking about, you know, six packs of wine, 12 bottles of wine for 20 I'm not saying you need to drink that much, but it's nice to have in the cellar. Now, there's offers and there's offers. As you can tell, this one is a very special offer for all Footyology listeners. Roco, for me, R-O-C-O is the voucher code, or Finey, F-I-N-E-Y for Finey. Jump on Grays Online. We're very thankful to them for their support. And uh, Footyology listeners will be too when they jump online and check out all their amazing offers and those two very special cars. Okay, we've got a lot to get through. Let's not waste any more time. On Footyology Newsfeed. Okay, well, footy back on in earnest. Uh, finally, the Marsh Cup has got underway. Uh, yet another new name for the pre-season competition and uh, got underway with your mob playing Hawthorne down at uh, RSEA Park. Is that right? Uh, the home formerly known as Moorabbin. But five games. In weekend one, we're uh, going to have a quick glance through all of them and uh, pick the eyes out of it. Before we do that, uh, has been already an injury of note. Uh, didn't happen in one of the Marsh games. It happened in Essendon's practice game against Melbourne uh, down at Casey. And uh, another injury blow for the Bombers, Paddy Ambrose, uh, injuring a posterior cruciate ligament and the diagnosis on that around the eight to ten week frame so another big blow for them yeah let's head to the Moorabbin football ground now I don't want to steal my own thunder I'm not going to talk about going back to Moorabbin because that's my rant but big crowd and St Kilda taking on Hawthorne. Expectations high for the Saints because they were unveiling quite a few of their new players. Crowd was 8,187. Which is about maximum capacity as, by law, OH&S for that ground now. Uh, uh, is it OH&S? Oh, yes, Occupation Health and Safety. And, yeah, expectations high for the Saints and St Kilda supporters were on very good terms with themselves with about three minutes, four minutes ago in the first quarter. They had put on seven goals to three, but, boy, if they wanted to know why there was a fuss about Brad Hill and they hadn't seen a lot of him, well, they knew what the fuss was about. It's all about his break from his, his ability to break from a contest with speed. Yes, it's a practice match, but the key was his delivery into the forward line, and St Kilda forwards wouldn't have known themselves because... I haven't seen delivery like that maybe since Winmar was playing with Tony Lockett. Interestingly enough, I watched the first quarter standing with Nicky Winmar. Great fun. So, what a performance by Brad Hill. He could put the cue in the rack after that quarter and say that that's why he's at Moorab. And at the same time, Jonathan Patton down the other end is showing why Hawthorne might have had the bargain pickup of the trade period. Because again, they got him for near next to nothing. I, I thought it was classic Hawthorne in that all the attention was about Brad Hill, who, who looked like a, a Rolls-Royce. He looked fantastic. But classic Hawthorne, they just kept plugging away, got the job done, and in the end uh, got within, uh, what, a, around the three-goal mark after having lost uh, big boy McAvoy with a, a cork thigh. Uh, plenty of pluses for them too. And I, I've just 
I've got a feeling about both these sides, to be honest. I think, um, you know, St Kilda look really sharp and, like, their skills improved. No doubt Hill was the perfect pick up for them. But I, I reckon the Hawks, you know, Mitchell back and, and very impressive return by him too. Uh, all the usual suspects, Smith was good, Bruce was good, Scully, I think, don't forget the improvement they can get out of him and Patton, as you mentioned. This is the thing about players like Scully, right? Like, Okay, so he's been at Hawthorne a year. You know, he was had his moments but not a world-beater and people sort of tend to forget but if he gets back to that level he was at at GWS before he uh, had that shocking leg fracture, he's going to be such a valuable player for them, as indeed O'Meara has become now after, what, three seasons with them. So they're right back in the ball game, I reckon, the Hawks. Yeah, it's going to be a case of their depth, I think, is going to be the key for Hawthorne because I don't think they... They've got some young players. I like the look of Graves, number 44. First yep. time I've seen him. and um, But... I feel that their best 22 will be super competitive and it might fall away a bit. Now, do you want a tip for a player that there are 800, look, there are 1,800 accredited AFL, I think, journalists covering the AFL, but 800, I think, specific journos, 1,800 media, 800 journos. Mm. I reckon if you've got the 800 journos to put down their best St Kilda 22, I'd be surprised if 10 had a certain player in that 22. But I can give you a bit of a tip. Okay, give us a tip. All right. This player, first of all, I know that Brett Ratton likes him. From a discussion I had, a personal discussion I had with Brett last year, and I don't think I'm giving away any trade secrets. I know it is. Uh, Marsh. Correct. Uh, look, he's... You've got to realise, Collingwood didn't delist him. He left Collingwood. He went back home um, with mental health issues, and he was suffering from depression. He said that in his last year he could... You know, hated playing football at Collingwood, but he did play 10 of the last 11 games. Have a look at his body. He's had a full pre-season. He is very fast. He's 192 centimetres strong and can play either end of the ground. Those players don't fall out of trees. So there's a player not many people have on their radar that by the end of the year I think could be a a key play for the Saints. All right, we'll take that one on board. Uh, moving along to Friday evening at Marvel Stadium, the Bulldogs and North Melbourne. Uh, pretty easy win to the Bulldogs in the end. They dominated the second half, uh, eight goals to four in the second half. And we've been very bullish about the Bulldogs, pardon the pun. Um, and I think you would have looked at this game. Yes, we know it's a practice match, but something about the way they move the ball, it's pretty exciting. I think their forward setup is pretty exciting, and uh, it all clicked for them. Bontempelli, great as ever. Hunter, McRae, um, Lewis Young, pretty impressive, and kicked three goals for them. Uh, Hayden Crozier, I think, is a player a lot of insiders there think will just get better and better for them, uh, and he was pretty important too. And uh, Sam Lloyd, Josh Shackey, you know, they've got a variety of goal kickers down there. Uh, really impressive by them. Uh, North Melbourne, yeah, not as uh, not as impressive. A little bit sluggish, I thought. Uh, no Jack Zeeble there, of course, obviously made a difference. How did you see that one? I think uh, sluggish would be a fair description of North Melbourne. The talking points out of the game... Marley Williams, that was a stupid bump, forceful. Now, I don't understand. On Ed Richards. On Ed Richards. I don't understand why we, at Monday morning, maybe by the time you hear this podcast, you know what the verdict is. We're supposed to have a 24-hour turnaround. In fact, that was advertised as part of the Marsh series that 
all indiscretions would be handled within 24 hours by the MRO, Michael Christian. Now, we haven't had a verdict as of Monday morning, and I think that is asleep at the wheel by the AFL stroke Michael Christian. So that's just a point. Doggy's concern come not from the game. They were very good, well sum- well summarised. Tim English didn't play because of a concussion issue. Now, I do not like when I hear Ruckman suffering from concussion because I guess I know what happened to Billy Longer, but other Ruckman have have spent a long time trying to get right. We hope to see English back sooner as soon as possible. And Aaron Norton, incredibly, had two knees operated on. Mm. A late withdrawal from the game, and it turns out that he had to go under the surgeon's knife. So what's the prognosis on him? They say he's going to be right for the start of the year season, but he's going to miss the important month leading up to the start of the season. Mm. He is a key plank in anything the Bulldogs do. And I just think that those sort of scrapes and cleanups should have been done when everybody else gets them done over the Christmas New Year period at the latest. Uh, valid concern. All right, let's move on to Saturday afternoon, Casey Fields. Pretty busy down at Casey over the weekend. And Melbourne, uh, 33-point winners over Adelaide. Um, I, I really enjoyed this game. thought it was really high quality. I thought Adelaide, you know, a side that a lot of people think might be in a, a transitional phase and struggling a bit. Plenty to like out of the, out of, uh, the Crows' performance. But... The D's, um, they looked really sharp. And uh, ev- the man everyone was talking about, Christian Petrarca, he just looked red hot. I think he finished last year with his head held high. I, I reckon he had a pretty good season in what was Anas Horribilis for Melbourne. Mm. I liked the way he played last year, and he seemed to be made of sterner stuff, now thrown into the midfield. That could really be the coming of age, just as Bontempelli will now take his time there. Top players with big bodies that can win the ball belong in the guts. So that is good news for Melbourne. Pickett showed that there will be some reasons to smile at his selection. I liked, I didn't mind their ruckman, Luke Jackson. Yeah, I thought he moved well. There's and good then, raps on him. And then on the Adelaide side of the and equation... Just one more for yeah. the Demons. I thought Ed Langdon did some nice stuff. Yeah, I, I think Ed Langdon did what Ed Langdon does, which is pretty serviceable, isn't it? Now, just let me throw up one for the Crows, because, you know, he wasn't a constant presence, but kicked a couple of goals. Oh, that's who I was going to do. Not Ben Dover. Yeah. (laughs) I'm calling him Dover for the rest of the year. Uh, Ben Davis. Yeah, he Um, looks good, didn't he? I thought he looked fantastic. (laughs) I mean, one goal's a a snap over the shoulder from a fair distance out, and the other one was just a, a real strong clunk and a... A really hefty kick, and he's he's been around for a bit. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, he's only had the one game, but uh, he looked athletic. He looks strong. Um, uh, could be just the man who ends up filling the void uh, with the departure of someone like Josh Jenkins. And I, I guess the bloke, look, it's a common name in football, so it's the Adelaide Miles Paholke, I thought was, <laughs> was he was good. Yeah. Yeah, um, don't it, confuse him with all the other Miles Polkies. No, right? no, I was just thinking they had another number. He's number ten, isn't he? They yeah. had another number ten with uh, oh, Matthew Yench, I think. Uh, yeah. So you can't wear. You've got to have an interesting surname to wear number ten at Adelaide, I think. Oh, one thing being called Paholke, and then to be Miles Paholke, it really sets you apart. He's he's okay. Yeah, no, he's not bad. He played some footy this year. Yep. Uh, All right, let's talk about, uh, I guess, you know, if you can have surprise results. 
I think this one would have surprised a few people. Gold Coast, 1720, 122, smashing Geelong, 71254. And, um, you know, look, it was enjoyable just to see Gold Coast kicking some goals and, and looking dominant. Alex Sexton, six goals. Um, King, two. Sam Day, two. Um, McPherson looked particularly sharp for them. Ainsworth was good. Brody, Bose. So uh, a lot of those kids stepping up. Matt Rowell, number one draftee. Noah Anderson kicked a good goal. So plenty of positives for them. What was going on with the Cats, do you think? Not going 100% all of them. Gary Ablett had eight possessions. Yeah. He can't possibly... He could not play a game of football that he was in any way engaged in. And have eight possessions. So I think it says a fair bit. They they would have been happy Geelong to see some form of... Look, there were a lot of players there I'd never seen before from Geelong. But Quentin Narkel, I think, was encouraging. Oh, he can play. Yeah, and that's that's a player that they would like to see develop because of his ability with run. Jordan and Clark, too, who, who had a great debut season until he got a, injured. He's a very good yeah. player. No, he's he classy. He's playing out of the back line a fair bit. Yeah, yeah. They He ended up on a wing last year, but he started the year in defence. So they've got a bit of flexibility with him. Yeah, he was impressive. For Gold Coast, they need to play as well as they can all the time. And this is a case probably of two teams playing at two different speeds with two different goals from the Marsh series and two different ambitions for the season proper. But for Gold Coast, I think the most pleasing aspect of their game was the, and you mentioned them, McPherson. It's probably his fourth or fifth year at the club. He he didn't turn up yesterday. He looks like he's not only playing well, but a leader. And Bose, Ainsworth, who got injured last year, but is an important player. These are the guys that are going to make it easier for Rowland Anderson, obvious talents, to play in a team that's competitive. It's so hard when you start out if your team's getting thrashed each week. I think that's when young good players learn bad habits. So it's a big year for the four or five year players at Gold Coast and they seem fit, engaged and ready to go. You know the other plus just quickly, I reckon the crowd, nearly 6,000 people now 6,000 you go, so what? But I mean practice match on the Gold Coast and they had a double header there yeah. too because the women played. Yeah, and, and the women are a cause of you know, real pride there. They played in a draw. We'll talk about that later. But it's great that they're engaged because I, I watched that women's game and I reckon yep. most of the 6,000 were there already. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah so, no. so it's a good crowd, but I think the boys can thank the girls for that one. And uh, final game uh, played on Sunday up at uh, Moreton Bay. Just on that, when it's a double header yeah. and it's free entry to an AFLW game, but you've got to pay to get into a Marsh Series What game. happens? Do you have to go out and come in again? Yeah, do you, I don't is, know. Is, maybe, it the, is it the honour system? I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe someone who is there can let us know. Um, Moreton Bay Central Sports Complex in uh, Burpengary was the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you eat too many yeah, Bay Bugs. Was the, um, w- was the venue for the final game of Week 1, and it was Brisbane-Port Adelaide. Uh, enjoyed this game too, and uh, good, impressive by Port Adelaide. 21-point victors over uh, Brisbane, 14-14-98 to 12-5-77. Really took charge in terms of general play in the second half. 10 goals to... Actually, is that right? No, I'm, I'm misreading something. But I, I thought they dominated really after half-time in terms of general play. Um some good signs for them. Nonetheless, big Charlie Dixon ending up with four goals. 
Uh, Stephen Motlop looked particularly sharp didn't with he three. Look, didn't he looking exactly how Motlop should be front and centre? He got a couple of goals by actually being where a good roving crumbing small forward is. I thought he was excellent in that role. That was a, the big plus support. I thought was just that their established players look particularly sharp. Um, you know, Boak was really good. Powell Pepper, I thought, was good. Hamish Hartlett was really good and uh, kicked a lovely goal for them as well. So pretty impressive. And uh, for the Lions, uh, Eric Hipwood, I thought, uh, moved pretty well. Kick three. McLuggage, three to him. Uh, controversial incident with Dane Zorko. Um, oh, he slung... He's, I can't remember who the poor player was, but... but in, into a trainer. Into a trainer who got absolutely smashed. Yes, and, and it looked like she... I thought she could have had a broken jaw. I mean, oh, it was very heavy contact. Um, she brushed it off pretty quickly, though. So it'd be interesting to see if there's any uh, sort of follow-up on that one because pretty dangerous stuff. But, um, yeah, look, the Lions, they weren't terrible, but uh, Port just looked a bit hungrier for it, which perhaps, given their relative finishes last year, is about what you would have expected. Port Adelaide have the excitement of those really good players, Butters, Rosie... Dersma, and seeing how that they how they develop, you know that second year blues syndrome. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it'll affect them. And the good thing is that there's a group of them that can work off each other. If one of them is finding the second year a bit harder, I I really feel that they are on onwards and upwards. Those young players. So if the Bart the Bartlets, the Hartlets and Bokes of this world stay fit and play full seasons, then Port Adelaide at their very best are a menace, a real menace. Or the Bartlett's and hoax. It's a hoax, a bit Bartlett. <laughs> All right, uh, there's the Marsh Series Week 1. Let's talk AFLW finally up to uh, Round 3 now. We had, uh, just running quickly through the results, St Kilda posting their first AFLW win uh, by five points over Melbourne. A couple of big goals in that game. Big upset. Western Bulldogs uh, lowered their colours to Carlton by 21 points in, I thought, a pretty high-standard game. Uh, a draw, our first draw of this season between Gold Coast and Brisbane. As we said, it was the um, prequel to the Gold Coast-Geelong-Marsh game. Uh, another thriller in Perth where Fremantle beat Collingwood by three points uh, with a goalless last quarter. GWS, uh, very impressive over West Coast. Uh, comfortable winners there by 28 points. They're looking quite good. North Melbourne smash Richmond. Gee, the Tigers are struggling. But North, as they were pretty impressive last year, looking good again, 12-4-76, which would have to be one of the highest scores we've seen in AFLW across the four seasons, I think. 56-point victors over the Tigers, who are struggling. And the final game, for mine, the pick of the lot, I thought this was a fantastic standard. Yeah, so did I. And uh, in the end, uh, Adelaide, 11-point victors, over Geelong, 8-1, to 6-2, Now, just get this off my, not chest, but quickly, uh, controversial finish no, to that. No, it wasn't. Okay, no, no. I, I know exactly what you're talking about, oh, but well, I don't think it was controversial. No, well, hear me out. I don't either. Oh, good. The good. first thing I tweeted was, that was a free kick for a deliberate rush behind every day of the week. She was, um, now, who was the uh, Geelong girl? I'm just trying to remember her name. It was, um, I've written it down here. Bear with me. It was Maddie McMahon. Took the ball on the goal line. So, yes, she was close to the goal line. But 
her opponent, Danielle Ponta, was at the top of the goal square. So she had time to stop, pivot, and at the very least get a clearing kick away. She didn't. She chose to rush the ball over, which was silly because it made the difference a goal. That's the whole thing about it. And um, the umpire paid deliberate rush behind. Now, I tweeted that and proceeded to get smashed by various people for the next hour or so, I posted a still, if you want to look on my Twitter feed, a still off the TV, which showed the distance between them when she took the ball. My point was, if you're not going to pay a deliberate rush behind for that, when are you ever going to pay one? Because she's nearly 10 metres away. I mean, that is no pressure. Yeah, look, she... So you agree with me? It was an intentional... She intentionally ran it through. And but, but the bit, it's, not, not enough pressure. But, under not enough pressure. The free kick was a suitable punishment for, look, you've got to have your head in the game, and these girls are professional footballers. Five points down with, gee, 50 seconds to go on the clock. It would have been an enormous effort to get the ball from one end to the other at that stage of the game. Why? Because they had run themselves ragged. It was a pretty warm afternoon. And truth be known, the game was Adelaide's anyhow. But if you're five points down... With 50 seconds to go, you do not run the ball through because that means the best you can hope for is a draw. So, Yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. And look, why? Because it was an incredibly fast-paced game for three quarters. These girls were out on their legs. I, don't, I can understand that uh, the player, was it McMahon? Yeah. Matty McMahon was just pretty exhausted by the end of the game and looking for the probably the, the refuge of the goal line. Doesn't matter. Adelaide, again, won a game that they... Last year's premiers, are, they've won two out of three and they're sort of just hanging in there because the win against St Kilda, like the win against Geelong, came hard fought when it looked like an upset was on the cards. And had they lost either of those two games, the season probably shot very hard to do anything from one out of three in this abbreviated football season. So they, they're still alive, I think, almost in stasis waiting for the return of Aaron Phillips. Well, we've only got one out of the entire competition, 14 teams. So we've only got one undefeated side now, and that's uh, Fremantle. Um, uh, Brisbane with two wins and a draw. Um, just quickly, so this, this just got my goat. I went to the AFLW uh, app to find the conference ladders, and I couldn't. Very hard to find. I know how to find them because yeah. I looked them up on the weekend. Well, I'll tell you, the other thing that got my goat, the AFL Live app had all the player stats for the Marsh games, but if you go to the website, which I like to do because I'm watching on my PC... Oh, it says still coming? or Still or coming. Yeah. Look, so what... Sorry, guys. Not everyone has a look on the app. So, you know, I would have thought you could be doing that rather than trying to unearth more lifestyle videos about Paddy Dangerfield going fishing, etc., which is apparently the direction AFL media are taking. But uh, right at the moment, you'd be looking at the two conferences. I think Conference B is the all-round stronger conference. I mean, Western Bulldogs, who are very capable, they're in third last place with only one win. Um, Brisbane and North. Oh, GWS, very strong too. But... There you go. Overall, the standard continues to improve, doesn't it? We're seeing a lot more capable teams. Yeah, well, look, you have a look at the new teams in the competition and Gold Coast and St Kilda are really impressing, aren't they? For St Kilda to get a win over Melbourne, previously undefeated and heading into round three, a lot of people's flag favourite, 
It was a, a bit of a dour game, but the big G train for St Kilda Griser. How about her? That was she, a monster kick, wasn't well, it? Prior to that, she had a shot of goal from outside 50, from 60 metres out that hit the post, mm. albeit on the bounce, and then took a strong mark in probably exactly the same spot that Plugger kicked that winning goal against Carlton in yes. 1989. Yes. That's a fair way out on an angle. Yeah. And she put it through. It was a, a, a mighty kick. Melbourne only kicked the one goal for the evening. And St Kilda, pretty desperate, get a great win. They play Fremantle next week. See, it's been a tough draw. Yeah. Bulldogs, Adelaide, Melbourne, Fremantle. But they've shown they're, they're good value, the Saints. Another player I wanted to single out from the uh, GWS West Coast game, um, Rebecca Privatelli. Now, she... Uh, why I've sort of I've watched. There's a few players in the AFLW I'm watching a bit more closely. One because uh, because they used to either play with or against my daughter when she played junior footy. Now uh, my daughter Andrea played for East Melbourne Knights. They got beaten in a grand final by Q Rovers, and the star that day for Q Rovers was Rebecca Privatelli. So I've been watching her closely, and she didn't. Uh, sort of click when she was at Carlton picked up I think quite late in the piece by GWS but she's been terrific for them the last couple of weeks and kicked three really clever goals uh, for the Giants on the weekend so good to see her getting an opportunity and making the most of it and GWS they haven't been that close to the mark but uh, definitely a big improver this season I think. Do you know what a Pivotelli is? Uh, No. If you ever a telly that you can turn around 360 degrees? 100%. And the, it's the make of the TVs that are in most of the hospitals. You know, the one that's sort of on the arm? Yeah. They're called pivotellies. The one with the very clunky handsets where you have to hold up to your... Yeah. Why is it they can revolutionise everything, but the handsets of the TVs in hospitals are still straight out of the 1950s? To know that you're in... To know that you're... You, you're not in Kansas anymore, Don. No, well, the problem is when you change the channels, you end up with Leave It to Beaver and uh, Bewitched. And <laughs> what? Well, is it a time travel? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, all right, so there is AFLW Round 3, Marsh Cup. It is a Marsh Cup, isn't no, it? No, no, Marsh Series. There's oh, Marsh no, Series. Oh, there's, there's no, no cup. cup. And I think that's a big mistake myself. I had that, that was another debate I had with someone. I think the elimination of any prize, as much as people used to take the piss out of it, um, you think of some of those night grand finals that got huge crowds. It's definitely, it, it's as good as sort of saying to everyone, oh, well, this is a practice match. It doesn't matter. If you've got a cup of some sort, you're at least playing for something. No, I blame Grant Thomas and Lenny Hayes. Exactly right. Their disdain at the toilet seat meant that every... No, it wasn't the toilet seat. That's the A-League. No, there was a... To- they won... I don't really? reckon their trophy was a toilet seat. Oh, I think it looked pretty toilet seat Oh, uh, well, but see, anyone drag up a picture of Lenny Hayes and Grant Thomas with the 2004 pre-season trophy. If that is a toilet seat, there'd be some pretty uncomfortable toilet going. You're going to quickly Google that now, aren't you? Hurry up. No, no. Well, we'll no, no, I'll hang po- on while you Google it. Okay, I'm going to try and Given get you're it on your phone half the episode usually anyway. Come Gee, on. that's rich coming from you today, but no, I don't want to say who's been on the phone. Just quickly... Okay. okay, well, I'll just pad here. So, Lenny Hayes, go to images. No, I'm just going to put in 2004. All right, okay. No, we will, we will come. I reckon it was the Panasonic. Don't put in, no. Just put in. Oh, no, no. Don't teach me how to search. Let's have a look. Okay. Uh, that was probably not the best idea. No, 
Why don't we get we'll on come with the back show, to it? Get on with the show, and we'll, I am more than happy to bring this up later on in the program. All right, uh, we've got an important um, uh, a life hack segment this week, so uh, let's not waste any more time with that. Life hacks, building a better world. All right, let's tidy up very quickly the question of the toilet seat, which I was insisting was the A-League trophy. Finally, you seem to think Lenny Hayes and Grant Thomas were holding up a toilet seat. <laughs> it was no toilet seat. It was the Wizard home loan. Wizard, car. of course. Yes. So, uh, And what shape was it? It was not Wizard-like. It was just a giant cup. Now, it was so big, I guess... In an emergency, it could be used as an outback dunny, but it wouldn't but it be no that comfortable. Seat. No, no, no. It could be one of the old ones from Moorabbin, perhaps, after they've been bent out of shape. It's a thought, sort of huge cup that would knock Frank Lowy off the dais. <laughs> oh, but, but oh, sorry, you shouldn't. You just I, laugh? No, I did, I did, and it's it's that was a really bad fall. That, but I just. <laughs> we can laugh because he was okay. Yeah, he landed on his head for an older for an older gentleman. Gee, he must have been a good nick to be able to come back from that. Yeah. Um, all right. So life hacks. Now, as you know, generally with this segment, and it can go anywhere. Um, we have three observations each about uh, stuff we've seen or pondered or been involved in over the preceding week, but um, we both thought simultaneously on this one that uh, there was an important topic that we need to give some time to, and uh, I won't apologise if you you think, oh no, not this again, because um, I think it, it needs to be continually talked about, given the fact that um, some of the attitudes still seem entrenched. I'm talking about the documentary about Adam Goods called The Australian Dream, which aired on the ABC on Sunday night. Um, Stan Grant, Indigenous journalist, put it together. Of course, we already had the final quarter, which was basically a... um, uh, I I thought the final quarter was terrific. It was uh, just a a compilation of news clips, which really told the the, uh, pretty tragic story, really, as it unfolded. Um, This had uh, some pretty um, in-depth interviews with a variety of uh, people involved in the story. Uh, There was Goods himself, Michael O'Loughlin, Paul Roos, John Longmire, uh, Nathan Buckley, who was very impressive, Andrew Bolt, one of the provocateurs, if you like, who, uh, not unusually for Andrew Bolt, managed to rewrite history and frame it for his own convenience. I would say this. And I know, we know that you and Andrew Bolt have diametrically opposed views on the world and... Oh, I think he's disingenuous. I mean, apart from that, I think he's disingenuous. No, no, no. Well, let me say yeah, what I okay. want to say about it. I, I think that's a bit unfair, actually, Rowan. Um, from your standpoint, he's disingenuous. And I'm not saying that I agree with everything he says. But I would say this, that I think it took uh, a fair bit of, not courage, but a fair bit of... Um, upright citizenship to be part of a documentary where he was not going to be well-framed. And, you know, the documentary tells a story that he disagrees with, but he made himself available to the documentary makers, to the filmmakers, and I think he deserves a tick for that. Um, oh, to a point, yeah. Okay. Well, look, I'll, I'll tell you my feelings 
watching it. I, I found it um, like the and, final. And importantly, Eddie Maguire was part of this documentary, and we I found that about him. I found it really interesting that Eddie was, and we'll talk about that a bit later. I found the whole thing uh, quite upsetting viewing. Um, same with the final quarter, but more heart, in a more heartfelt fashion with this because you were hearing. Adam Good's own take on events. I found the distressing parts, um, the, the the vision, and there was quite a bit with his mother. Um, you know, her her pride in him at say when he won his first Brownlow, when he was awarded Australian of the Year. Um, her contribution to his appearance in the Australian Story doco, where she was um, you know talking about separation from family and the obvious pain that caused her. And I think it's insights like that which probably help the naysayers on this sort of get a better idea of how deep um, Indigenous issues burn for people who've been affected by them, not even directly, but over a a series of generations. You're talking about a race which has been dispossessed, not only of land, but often uh, terribly of their family so I thought it gave it some context I thought you got a good insight into his deep connection with indigenous culture when he basically uh, you know went and sort of reconnected with the land I thought that was quite insightful and illuminating um, but again you know that I'm so embarrassment is probably my primary emotion embarrassed at the way our game, allowed such a champion to basically have to sort of slink off into the distance without a fitting farewell. And you can say, well, he didn't want one. Well, he didn't want one because he was going to get booed, you know. Um, And tragically, Finey, and and Samantha Lane did a really good interview with him halfway through last year, he hasn't been to a game since. He has no desire to go to a game, and he has no interest in the game anymore. And for a, a bloke of his stature who was Australian of the Year, a dual Brownlow medalist, a 300-game player, a dual premiership player, you know, one of the greats and one of the most important parts of the AFL scene, certainly in a modern context, for him to be that disaffected because of what happened is a bloody tragedy. And I think, I, I don't know if there's anything that can be done to redress it, but hopefully people who have been cynical and and sort of uh, the naysayers on this question, and they're probably the ones least likely to watch this doco, but I defy even them to watch this documentary and not feel at least a little bit more sympathetic to his cause than they were. There was the uplift. He did leave the game early, no question about it. And towards the end of his final season, he walked away from the game. But there was... The, the pendulum did swing back somewhat with a, an outpouring. We saw that on in the film, the outpouring of support. In players, his absence, though. Players from all teams recognising him, and it was great watching you know, Nathan Jones playing, and you saw the armbands, Indigenous armbands, being worn by all players of certain clubs, and just Australians getting right behind Adam Goods. A sort of a, a national mea culpa almost, and wonderful to see fans from opposition teams lining up with Adam Good's banners. The number thirty-seven being an unusual number for a, for a champion, isn't it? But 
it became synonymous and hopefully will always be synonymous with the great Adam Goods. Because so, so, sorry, I don't, I'm not yeah. trying to interrupt your train of thought, but I mean, do you think that's universal though or a reflection of the football world? Because um, actually, I, I didn't get much blowback to what I tweeted last night when the program was being shown, but I'm still taken aback at some people who just, they don't get it. You know, sort of like, oh, well, lots of, I had someone this morning. Well, lots of people get called names. Yeah, they yeah. don't understand the difference. And I'll try and explain it because this was a, an important program for me to watch. You see, Adam Goods' journey into being a proud Indigenous Australian, we saw, we got a first-hand picture of the fact that it has not been a lifelong journey that because of circumstance, his mother being part of the stolen generation, and just as a single mother, her obviously primary objective was not teaching Aboriginal culture to her, her kids. And by the way, Brett Goods, Adam Goods' brother, who played a handful of games for Bulldogs, was an emotional part of this and a very moving part of this film as well. That the the she was had to just concern herself with bringing up three boys on her own. There was no time for cultural learnings so Adam Goods, the footballer that arrived at Sydney, was not an Indigenous man. And he thanks Sydney. And, and we can look into the program in a number of different ways, but I think Sydney Football Club, a, an organisation that got their shit together finally after the move from Victoria or South Melbourne, has much to be proud for. They afforded, they, they gave him a sense of purpose through their vision of what a good football club should be and the role he would play in that, and he is eternally thankful for that. It made the boy into a man, and then it gave him the opportunity to tertiary educate himself, and he chose Indigenous Studies, and the, and the woken, to use a modern term, Adam Goods became a very different person and somebody, he said, after learning and studying, he would no longer accept those barbs and, and no longer stand quietly, uh, stand quiet when somebody slurred the Aboriginal people or him. I think that's a really important point you make about the timing of his awakening because Michael O'Loughlin sort of made that point too and isn't uh, I love Mickey O I think he's a really impressive guy but he said you know I'd had that drummed into me since I was a child but I realized that Adam hadn't and there was a lot that he had to learn and he witnessed that sort of realization on the part of goods about you know his his heritage and the the tremendous um you know tragedy involved with that and, and don't you find it understandable therefore so this gives a real insight into adam goods and why people who may not feel fondly towards him should watch this program isn't it a natural follow-on that when you learn about your cultural past and the travails of your people as an adult in a tertiary environment that you are going to become more engaged politically. Michael O'Loughlin, Gilbert McAdam, a great part of the program as well, had strong Indigenous Aboriginal upbringings. And while they, while they feel very deeply about their Aboriginality and won't stand idly by to hear it denigrated, may not be as quick to become active about it as somebody who picked up those feelings in a tertiary environment, which is a politically charged environment, and as an adult, 
the indignation at, as to what was done to your people would be far more powerful at that time than something that you'd learnt slowly by osmosis as a child. So the politically charged and woke Adam Goods, I think, is a natural follow-on from his life, from from the order of things. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that entirely. And uh, so you mentioned indignation. Well, I was indignant in several places in this, but one, and I tweeted as such, any time I see that footage of his press conference immediately after the incident with the 13-year-old girl, in which he primarily called for compassion and understanding for her because she was a 13-year-old girl, when he said, this is the face of racism in Australia and it's a girl, I mean, that, again, that was so misinterpreted. He was saying, if an innocent 13-year-old girl can take on these attitudes, it shows that we've got a problem with the lessons that are being handed down from parents to children. It wasn't an attack on her. He went out of his way to ask for compassion for her, and yet a series of people, and I'll name them, Andrew Bolt did it. Now, I'll grant you what you said, but he led the charge. And that's why I thought what he had to say was disingenuous. Miranda Devine, who's a particularly nasty, nasty piece of work who is now in the US, but she seized on it and went on and on about the bullying of a 13-year-old girl. Someone who surprised me in a disappointing way was Neil Mitchell. I thought he his immediate offerings on air were... Uh, again, lacking in understanding of where goods was coming from. But th- that incident was appropriated, not so much Mitchell, but by Bolton Devine, absolutely. It was appropriated by them for this ongoing culture war that they use their um, platforms to push. Now, they've been doing it serially in their media outlets for, well, they've made a career out of it. But when you are prepared to take the... I guess, the um, welfare of the person who has suffered racial abuse and has been put through the ringer and you then make him the villain and you're doing it for totally opportunistic motives, i.e. furthering your brand of of division and and button pushing and clickbait and appealing to people's worst prejudices and fears. That just disgusts me, Fanny. And we can't grow up as a country until... And certainly the media... Uh, why half the reason I think the media is in decay is because of the growth of that industry, the opportunistic, we're going to tap into people's bigotry and fears, and rather than try and educate them, which is what the media one, once upon a time actually did help do, we're going to we're going to um, lower ourselves to that level, and we're going to play on that bigotry and that fear in the in the vain hope of getting clicks and sales and those two do it to push their careers and i hate that and that scene it just made me so unspeakably angry from a personal perspective this program was something that was a much much must watch for me and i realized that afterwards i learned something in this program and my attitude now is different to what it was beforehand and that makes it a powerful couple of hours viewing. Okay, so what, tell us what was your attitude beforehand? Okay, I was, and this was after taking a lot of talk back on it on radio, yep. I felt that it was, it's impossible to say definitively that everybody that's booing is being racist. And it's 
anybody's right. You pay your dime. Was that said, though? Did people say that everybody booing was racist? There was a line drawn in the sand by Paul Ruse, who mentioned it on this documentary, yep. by Ross Lyon, a great friend and supporter of Adam Goods, and by Gil McLaughlin. Okay. If, and there was a, it was a moment in time, anybody from this day who boos Adam Goods is being racist. If you weren't previously, you're on notice now. And I felt that that was an ultimatum unfairly levelled at football fans who have the right to, if you if you can't swear at the football, you can't say a lot of things at the football that you used to. Okay, we're, we're a society that is understanding more as we go along. Okay, so how has your view changed? Okay, and so that overriding view that it's wrong to label with one, with one um, term, racist, a booing crowd, has changed for me slightly. And it was the words of, now I can't remember his name, but he appears briefly in the documentary, an, an Aboriginal activist who was speaking afterwards about the just what it meant to Aboriginal people to hear this din of disapproval for Adam Goods, and also picking up other things said during the documentary. And that is, okay, you might not have been outwardly, actively, consciously being racist when you were booing. Mm. But you were standing arm in arms with people and you were doing the same. You were mimicking people. There was certainly an element of it that was racist. No question. Mm. I always would concede that. Mm. And you are aligning yourself with that. Why would you do that? Mm. So if not actively, tacitly approving of racism, then you are standing next to the black shirts. And you should be distancing yourself from that. Maybe the first time you didn't know quite get what was going on. But people are conscious, you know, we're conscious beings. We're not stupid. And I now am, I am now clearly far, far more, con- far more sympathetic and far more understanding of the pain it caused and the idea that you were happily singing the same dirge as the racists. Mm. You know what? That makes it racist. Yeah, sorry, well, sorry, it does. It does. Well, that uh, I felt that at the time. I, I wouldn't have ever said. Every I understand what they're saying. I wouldn't have said everyone booing is racist because I don't believe that. But yeah, exactly what you said. If you're you're going along with that, is a tacit approval to that racism. And and listen, in terms of how it started, I've got no doubt. And you know, there's various debates about when the booing began. But he's, even after the incident with the girl, which was 2013, I think his elevation to Australian of the Year and, and speaking on Indigenous welfare issues generally from that platform, that for some people was, quote, unquote, the final straw. And it gets back to this really uncomfortable truth that I think we, uh, in a sporting context, we um, in, enjoy watching Indigenous athletes perform and we enjoy their skill and in, intuit, intuitivity, intuition um, with the ball. But as soon as they start challenging us, uh, as soon as they start sort of stepping out of line, so to speak, uh, w- there's a significant sector of our society that feels threatened by that and feels uncomfortable and and pushes back hard against that and I guess that's what Bolt was alluding to but it's not good enough you know we we need to 
we need to take on board what these people have to say. And this is the great frustration with this thing is that that documentary was so well done and so persuasive, not in a pushy way, but just in a, look, here's my story, have a look, that the people that most need to see it, I I defy many of them to come away with, like I said earlier, without a more sympathetic view. But unfortunately, I think a, a small minority of people only of that, sector will look at it. I think most people are so entrenched with that. Everybody needs to see it. They can't bear to be challenged. Everybody needs to see it. Everybody does. Well, how do we get that to happen? By not talking about it in terms of you need to see it. Just see it. Just see it as a really well-made film about a football champion who went in the latter part of his career on a private journey that became very public. I've got to... And that... That's just see it. Just watch it. Whether you think, don't assess yourself until after you've seen it. It's one of those great films that makes you question how you've been as a person, what you've done. And I want to talk about that in a minute because I've gone on a personal journey whilst watching it and ever since. And it's been, it's been challenging for me. It's been a challenging 12 hours. It really has been. All right. Um, okay, I'm interested to hear that. I just want to bring up before that, uh, because we, we can't sort of ignore it, Sam Newman and Eddie Maguire. Now, another piece that made me feel really uncomfortable was when they replayed the press conference that followed Sam um, doing blackface when Winmar didn't appear on the footy show. And Sam, the sneer on his face, it, it was so obvious that he thought it was a... a a lot of crap. He he was doing it under sufferance, um, and he he wanted people to know that that's how he felt. Um, and Eddie interviewed at length for the doco. I don't know if Eddie came out of it that well because he basically excused what Sam did and said he's a product of his times. And well, yeah, Ed, I mean he might be a product of his times, but we all have the capacity to learn and. I think a lot of people in the football media, including us, Finey, you know, we we both know Ed and we both know Sam and, and you know, I, my politics couldn't be more divorced from Sam Newman's, but, you know, I've had some pleasant times with him and some pleasant exchanges and, and stuff, and it's, it's confronting when it's people you know. But I, I just, I looked at that and I thought, that's a real ugly side of you, Sam. Are you not prepared to take on board the hurt that this has caused and he appears not to get it and it's so frustrating because he's a reasonably intelligent bloke ditto ed and uh you know look the the king kong stuff that was terrible um and i've got no doubt eddie was absolutely full of remorse and mortified by by what he did but it's what that says sort of subconsciously again that is the worry i don't think he I think this is where Stan Grant deserves great credit as a director. Whether this was by hap- you know, happenstance or whether he actually meant to do it, and I'm sure he did mean to do it because he's a highly intelligent journalist, he allowed Eddie Maguire to come on the program and be part of the documentary. And Eddie Maguire is very good at saying what needs to be said in front of the camera. It's a skill that you hone the more you're in front of the camera and Eddie's been in front of the camera a lot talking about a lot of controversial issues 
So for the first part of the documentary, he seems like a very sympathetic supporter to Adam Goods. But as Adam pointed out, what was disappointing, and this was really where the two went their separate ways, when Eddie said that he rang up Adam and he thanks him for taking the call and understanding and accepting his apology. And Adam said, I told him you're not a friend. I told, him, I told Eddie you're not a friend. And he said it for the right reasons. He said, because what came out was something that Eddie forgot he was in front of a microphone. It's exactly what Eddie would have said at the pub over a couple of beers to mates. And that's just where Eddie's mindset was. Mm. And it was really well done that Stan almost gave Eddie enough rope to hang himself through that documentary. And I think it's not whether people look good or look bad. People are what they are. And you get an insight into somebody that knows how to be politically correct and come across and say all the right things, but in a moment of sort of uncensored, no trampoline net below the performer truth, we got more of an insight into Eddie Maguire, a clearer picture into Eddie. And Make I, of it what you will. And I, Well, I think casual racism is the biggest issue now. That overt racism, fortunately, has been marginalised, but that casual racism, it indicates a state of mind, doesn't oh, it? And that's the problem. Overt racism is now so, so, so rightfully unacceptable in the workplace, in, in, in any official environment. But if it still lies dormant in people and is being almost um, suppressed, then it, it, it forments. So what's it your, doesn't go away. So what's your view on Sam, on Sam Newman on this question? All right, Sam has a problem that many people have, and that is that in their own mind they are not racist because they have had dealings with people of different cultures and... I mean, Sam loves Polypharma, for example, yeah. and spoke at Polypharma's death at his passing. There was no person more effusive about Poly. And he would say, with a clean conscience, I've, I've, I've played with Aboriginal, I've worked with Aboriginal people, I get on fine with them, I don't see colour. And he wouldn't have seen colour. He would have seen Polly the footballer, and he would have seen any person he's worked in the media with as a fellow media performer. And people like that, and a lot of people, Australians, are like this, that thinks that it absolves them from um, a, an overview of being allowed to say hurtful things and to be insensitive to those people of different cultures that they don't know. You know, my best friend, it's the old line, my best friend was a whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's not good enough. It simply isn't good enough. Because coming with exposure and He's a major public figure, is responsibility. And also is a a history. So look, what he did with Blackface and Nicky Winmar in what year was it? Nineteen ninety nine. Ninety nine nine, I thought around two thousand, was unacceptable then, but it wasn't a hanging offence. Now it's a hanging offence. You did that on TV, your career is finished. Mm. Okay. So he knows in the light of today what he did then was wrong. And here was an opportunity through the Adam Goods affair to make good possibly on that behaviour and look back at a younger Sam Newman and say, oh, that, was, that was probably, that's off. That's not right. Let's, let's, let's pull back some lost ground. But Sam is, he's a very, and I like Sam a lot, and I still like Sam a lot. But in my awakening since seeing that program, 
I also know a lot of Sams of this world. And whilst I like him any time I've met him, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't speak I wouldn't speak up for him in this regard. I wouldn't say Sam's not a racist, blah 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 blah. I'm not saying I'm not going down that track because it's not true in a way. All right. Uh, anything else you need to say? Well, can I just speak to this awakening? Yeah, Look, yeah. Look, I'm I'm Jewish, but not outwardly so. And and a lot of people who know me, certainly on knowing me for a while, don't even know that I am Jewish. It's not part of you know. It's not a, a part of my life really, in terms of my day to day goings, which exposes me to a lot of because I I don't have my circle of friends is wide and varied and not particularly ethnically based. Look, I, I've been exposed to a lot of um, anti-Semitism, not directed at me, but just uh, there's strong feeling. You know, anti-Semitism is a long hell. It's been, it's generational. It's something you picked up from your parents and they picked up from their parents and goes back all the way to England. It goes to usury and to, and you hear people speaking about, now there's a, a millions or so landlords in Australia, but if you're not Jewish and you have a Jewish landlord, you know, you're, you're renting a property from somebody who's Jewish. You wait till you hear people talk about that Jew or your, a business that you've been involved in. If it's anything to do with money, there is a deep-seated anti-Semitism. And also, I, I, I played sport for... I played junior football for Ajax Football Club and cricket for Ajax Seniors. And it's funny, as, as captain of Ajax Ones, I stepped into an environment where the club wasn't well-liked and that manifested itself into a lot of anti-Semitism. And I think we worked hard at righting the wrongs of previous Ajax teams who had a bad attitude, felt when they walked down the ground, even when they got to the ground, they hate us. And, and that can cause problems. You need to be open and, and try and open yourself to um, exp- you know, understanding people. But I've sat around too long and heard th- racial slurs and said nothing about them because they're not directed directly at me. And I f- now feel that that is time to stop. And can I, this is a very quick story. This happened to me. This is incredible. And this should have made me a more conscious Jew in terms of anti-Semitism. When I was 13, 12, I was playing under-13s for Ajax Football Club. And we played in a competition where every year they were the same teams, down the peninsula, down towards Frankston, St Francis, Edith Vale, Aspendale, Chelsea. And, and the clubs knew each other. And a new team was added into our comp one year, Mentone. And they'd never played against a Jewish club. They'd, back back then, in the mid-70s, late-70s, those guys obviously didn't know much about Jews or whatever. And it played at our home ground, and it was unbelievable. Now, there'd been a lot of stuff coming from their coaches' bench, and I was conscious of it, very conscious of it. And the ball went out of bounds, and I had the ball in my hands, and it just happened that I ran towards right into their coaches' box area. And their runner, as I had the ball and was running out of bounds, remember I'm just turned 13, said, Hitler should have gassed the whole lot of you. I had the ball in my hand. I ran past him and I kicked it straight into the face of their coach. Because it, it had been coming all day. Anyhow... I got reported, and the whole thing, bit of a circus, ended up in a, in a meeting between the two clubs that I had. To, I got a ten week suspension, but suspended. So it, you know, if something happened again, 
and and the competition, Southeastern Junior Football League, I think it was, got teams, to, the the executives from the clubs together. I was there, their captain was there in Jollymont House, which was interesting. In the city, there was people there from the then VFL, and in very strange environment. I was actually handed, I was actually called up on in front and given a Mentone Football Club cap and a plaque in appreciation of Mark Fine, which I accepted because I was told not to say anything really on the night, went home and threw out. But there was words spoken, conciliation. It played out, this I'll never forget this, we played Mentone at Mentone later in the year. And as part of this conciliation, they invited us after the game for you know a, a lunch. It was like a cricket afternoon tea, all laid out on a table. There were cakes, big tray of sandwiches and drinks. And there were the women and some blokes, some parents, you know, in the canteen behind. And there was a speech going on. I could see them sniggering and laughing. The mothers. Like four or five of them. They could barely contain their giggles. And I thought, this isn't funny. And then I found out what they thought was funny. Because this giant tray of sandwiches, every one of them had ham in it. And that doesn't bother me, and it didn't bother my teammates, because we were all pretty, we were all, you know, just kids. I ate the sandwiches, I ate ham all my life. But I still have that image of these mothers laughing, like giggling and laughing, and thinking how hilarious it was that there's all this public apology and high profile, and they've made like a hundred sandwiches, and every single one of them had ham in it. Mmm. And I should, and I should, you know, from that point on, I, I learnt at a young age that you know um, racism and in this case anti-Semitism. I think Jews can empathise a lot with Aboriginals and vice versa at this undercurrent that's just always it's often there. And look, I I really admire. I, I shouldn't have to do this. I admire people like you, Rowan, and certain people in my life that have absolutely never spoken. It never at any point have you said so-and-so Jewish, even people that, even positive stereotypes, like just people are people. Just, you know, I I hate, I I get so nervous when I hear so-and-so, this Jew, a Jew, and I thought, what's coming next? I just hate it. I I think um, uh, that was a amazing story. Thanks for sharing that. I I think one of the issues is that... um, people like Andrew Bolt try this line of, you know, people are people, but that doesn't take into account the baggage that those people are carrying. And that, for me, that is the key to the Indigenous situation, that to say that it's just like being called fat or, or, you know, some other physical appearance thing. It is not. Spot on. Because because it carries... carries, there are generations of baggage here in, in historical persecution and dispossession of a whole race of people. And in the case of Jewish people, the attempted extermination of an entire race. I don't have, I've never had grandparents. I never had uncles and aunties. My father never spoke of the war. He adored his brother and they survived the war. They ended up in Auschwitz. And on the day Auschwitz was liberated, my father and his brother were alive and they ran because the German guards started shooting. Really? It was the day the camp was liberated, and they got separated. And he spent a year and a half searching around Poland and then other parts of Europe on tips looking for his brother. 
He never, ever brought it up. The only time he ever mentioned his brother was at the dinner table one night and he's got a nosebleed and his nose started bleeding and he's never had nosebleeds in his life and he ran out of the room. And that was the only time he mentioned his brother in my life and his life to me, to the family. And what was the significance of the nosebleed? It was stress. I don't know. Yeah. It, was, it was just this surreal, strange... Mo- so how can then somebody turn around and say, with the when I was taking calls on Adam Goods, somebody rang and said, Look, I'm redhead, I'll get called a ranger. I'm not upset. And I said to the person, when, you are, when, you, when your children are taken away from you because they're red-headed, because you're considered incompetent and can't bring them up, when you're put in camps or when you are chained and shackled at the neck together, because not for crimes, but because you're red-headed, or when you're carted off to an extermination camp and killed because you're red-headed, ring me back and I'll empathise. Yeah, no, spot on, spot on. And, and again, the people that peddle those sort of uh, mistruths, if you like, of the people that most need to see this doco. And uh, look, if you, if you haven't seen it... Both of us, this is on behalf of both of us because we've got to get on with it, urge you to watch it on ABC iView, The Australian Dream. Uh, it is a, a brilliantly made and crafted documentary and, and just watch it with an open mind and hopefully um, you will be persuaded. And to that end, Stan Grant, who directs it, does something that ostensibly no director should ever do and that is insert himself in the story. And he should have done it and he did it with with sensitivity, with timing, and it was right. And it was very hard to do, but he did it well. All right, the Australian dream. Uh, check it out on iView. Let's step back in time, Finey. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Rightio. Well, as I said last week, finally, we've had a few complaints about not being contemporary enough in vinyl and video, even though, as you rightly pointed out, vinyl and video are of themselves a um, predated uh, distribution platforms. <laughs> they're, they're, the I'm talking name, like an HR person. <laughs> the name itself lends the listener to the to the notion of where we pitch this, our own... Life in music and video. You did worse than I did. However, um, uh, after last week we were quite contemporary, 2009, I thought, well, okay, let's keep it in the 21st century for another week. So I've gone back as far as I could while still doing that. The year we have chosen is 2000, a massive year, of course, a new millennium, Essendon Premiership, that's how long ago it was. New millennium, unless you're Ross Oakley. Ah, yes, uh, always, uh, yes, one year behind. Uh, the um, somewhat uh, damp squib that was the Y2K uh, bug, which had everyone panicking and building uh, underground shelters and stuff. However... But the very dry squib that was the Olympics, because oh, I went to the Sydney Olympics as a fan and my f- favourite sporting experience of my life. Uh, it was pretty huge. A huge year also in music, movies and TV. Um, now... Uh, my choice in this, and it wasn't why I chose a year, uh, just a few honourable mentions here. So um, one of my favourite albums, Rage Against the Machine, surprise, surprise, what proved to be their last album, and it was a covers album called Renegades, 
and a really interesting selection of songs, some rap, some rock, um, all covered in uh, classic Rage Against the Machine style. So I love that album dearly. Uh, another favourite of mine, Upstyle Down by 28 Days, a Australian... A uh, Frankston-owned um, uh, rap and rock outfit who were pretty big there for a few years. Powderfingers Odyssey Number no. 5 came out. Uh, Pearl Jam brought out by Noral. Linkin Park made their debut okay. with an album yes. called Hybrid Theory. Yes. Yeah, I like that album. Okay. I saw 28 Days at the Corner Hotel. Yep. Because I knew, still am good mates with uh, their sound and production guy. Yep. Great, they were a, they were a good band. Oh yeah, I've got all their albums, and yeah. I'll never forget what they said up on stage, and I've held it to be true ever since. What was it? We're not a tattied up, tattooed up little boy band like Lincoln Park. Oh right, okay, <laughs> yeah, no, well they they their songs reference a lot of that boy band stuff too. Um, uh, Sucker, I think's one. Um, anyway, yeah, great band. However, my favourite album of two thousand by a million miles, and this is, I kid you not, in my view, this is one of rock music's greatest albums. I would put this in my top, comfortably in my top five albums of all time. Reason being, um, there's how many tracks? 11 tracks on it. This happens very rarely. I love every single one of these 11 tracks. This is a band that picks you up by the scruff of the neck and shakes you around for the entire duration of your listen and puts you down and you feel absolutely drained and exhausted in a pleasant way. It is a cacophony of frenetic guitars, vocals. And who am I talking about, you're asking? I'm talking about the short-lived comet on the horizon of rock music that was at the drive-in from uh, El Paso, Texas. And this was the pinnacle of their career. The album is called Relationship of Command. It's got a... They were more than just a cult band. They were pretty successful, but a a very, very devoted following this band. Finally, I actually tweeted One Armed Scissor, which was the single off this album the other night. And unusually for when you tweet music, it had huge reaction people and a lot of people saying yes yes this is one of the great albums um so who were at the drive-in now they reunited briefly a couple of years ago and bought out another album um which wasn't quite as good in Terralia. but um the lineup was cedric bixler savala lead vocals omar rodriguez lopez on guitar they were sort of the two creative driving forces of the band and um After they split up, which unfortunately was only about a year or so after this album, they segregated into what would become two very popular bands, Mars Volta, the Mars Volta, and Sparta, um, and both had uh, considerable commercial success. But I cannot recommend this album highly enough. It is, like I said, frenetic. So what sort of genre of music is it? I guess you'd call it sort of post-hardcore. It's uh, very... uh, the vocals are uh, emotional but uh, compelling. It is edgy, uh, fast-paced guitar rock. Um, it's not. It, it's messy. The sounds sort of go all over the place. Um, the ideas in the even the song titles. Here, here's the track lineup: Arsenal, Pattern Against User, One Arm Scissor, Sleepwalk Capsules. 
Invalid Litter Department, which has an absolutely stunning film clip about the murder of women on the Mexican border. Uh, Mannequin Republic, Enfilade. Uh, Iggy Pop also guest guested on this album on vocals, and that was one of the tracks. Rolodex Propaganda, Quarantined, Cosmonaut, which is just an epic, I think that's my favourite track, and Non-Zero Possibility. People, I reckon most people would have heard, heard One-Armed Scissor, and if you like that song, every song on this album has a similar powerful punch. A lot of people claim that the first five tracks are Carson or Patton Against You's or One-Armed Scissor, Sleepwalk Capsules, Invalid Litter Department, are the best opening five tracks of any album and you know what i tend to agree with them because it just belts you over the head this album i know i'm big on this i'm enthusiastic and i I love to get people to hear stuff they haven't heard i'm telling you listen to this album it is an absolute bona fide rock classic all right, you're up. Will you have a listen to it for me, Finey? Never heard of them previously. I heard a bit of it. They'd need to be better than that for me to listen to all 11 tracks, to be honest, but mm-hmm. I don't hate it. Okay. So I'll give it a listen. All right. Okay, if, if you said, I like that turn of phrase, it picks you up by the scruff of the neck. And my music choice is not an album, it's a song, because I don't think I'd want to listen necessarily to 10 songs by this al- by this band, but... From the same person that brought you I Love Johnny Cash, I, I Love Garth Brooks. Sing, look, one of my favourite songs is If Tomorrow Never Comes, a soppy Garth Brooks song. Incredibly, I also love this song. It's by a band called Mudvayne, who may be thrash metal rock, hardcore rock, new heavy metal, call them what you will, maybe lose some cred because they like dressing up a bit. Their singers occasionally well, they look like... a bit of a slipknot, are they? Or? Oh, more like Pinhead from Hellraiser, that sort of look. So their lead Cannibal singer... Corpse, they did that. Yeah. Their lead singer is a guy who, when you hear his name, you think surely he should have played for Port Adelaide. What's his name? Chad Gray. <laughs> <laughs> is that not a Port Adelaide name? Or Kim. <laughs> <laughs> Chudley. Anyhow, Chad Gray, he was a factory worker earning 40 grand a year. Went straight from that to lead singer of a band that sold over six million records. Their most famous song was released in 2000. It was on an album, but I never bought the album. And the name of the song is Dig, and the al- and the band is Mudvayne. Now, some people will know Mudvayne, some people will love Mudvayne, some people will hate Mudvayne, most people probably haven't heard of Mudvayne. One song will tell, tell you the tale. It, Dig is it, and it is... It does, look, for a, for a thrash metal song, I think it actually has, it's a bit memorable. I, I think it has some beat and some rhythm to it, and I like it. All right, so well, we might get a taste of that a bit later on. Uh, let's move on to movies. Um, interesting, because I, I had a look at movies in 2000, and I didn't find a heap uh, that I was that interested in, to wow. be honest. Uh, you you differ on this one. However, the one I settled on in the end, and a uh, big qualifier here, I saw this film on a plane on a uh, flight home from Europe, but it certainly made the journey go faster because I thought it was compelling. I, I'm not big on action movies as a rule. I, I like, you know, I like sort of social realism movies, um, preferably, but this, I thought, look, I've got to watch this. I've got the chance to watch it. It had a huge amount of hype. 
I watched it. I wasn't disappointed. I thought it was terrific. And I'm talking about Gladiator, directed by Ridley Scott, starring Russell Crowe as Maximus Decimus Murdius, uh, Joaquin Phoenix as the arch-villain Commodus, uh, Connie Nielsen as Lucilla, Oliver Reed, who actually died of a heart attack during the filming, and they had to... um, use a body double for a, a couple of shots towards the finish. Uh, he plays Antonius Proximo. Derek Jacoby, who previously had played uh, Claudius in the BBC series I, Claudius, plays Senator Gracchus. And Richard Harris as Marcus Aurelius. Um, so it's an all-star cast. It won five Oscars, Best Picture, Best Actor, Costume Design, Sound, Visual Effects. Um, if you haven't seen it, I'm sure 90% of people listening to this have, and it's been a long time since I saw it. I only I only saw it the once, but I, I did think it was it was great. Uh, Russell Crowe plays a Roman general betrayed when his ambitious son, uh, the ambitious son of Emperor, the Emperor of the day, uh, Marcus Aurelius, um, he murders Marcus Aurelius and seizes the throne. Uh, Russell Crowe's character is reduced to slavery, uh, but he rises through the ranks uh, of the gladiatorial arena to avenge the murders of his family and of the emperor. Um, and as you'd expect, you know, all that sort of genre of films, Ben Hur, etc., etc., heaps of action, heaps of blood and gore. Um, dramatic, it's long, but uh, I think it's very, very well done. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I know you're giving it a thumbs down. You oh, didn't. Mate. Hollywood's treatment of Rome. I mean, what is it? It's to me, anyhow. It is simply Rob Roy or Braveheart in Roman tunics. I mean, oh. it's just the same story. And I'm a I'm a huge. I'm sort of obsessed with the Colosseum because it's such a fascinating story. Its construction, its first day. It's an amazing story, the Colosseum, and I just wish that movie would have given us more of an insight into what was great about the Colosseum. But it didn't. Now, with apologies, and I know you do this uh, some years for movies, I thought they were great movies. I mean, if you like sort of realism movie, Aaron Brockovich is a great movie because it's a real story, and I've checked it, and it's very accurate as to how it played out. Julia Roberts plays the role beautifully, so I love that as a movie. Being a huge Coen Brothers fan, I'm, I love Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, not everybody's favourite. It's the story of Homer, you know, the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, brought to life in 1890. George Clooney, very funny in that. And uh, what was the other movie? There was another movie I loved from that year. And uh, oh, um, oh, it'll come back to me because this, oh, this 2000 has. There are three movies that I can't split as my favourite movie, and I'm proud and I'm proudly defend I know them all off by heart by the way this one Sexy Beast might just be the best of the lot it is from go to woe just a magnificent movie if Snatch was released in the same year that sort of English East End crime movie not a patch on the brilliant Sexy Beast Ben Kingsley plays the menacing Don Logan was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor um, Winston, uh, whatever his first name is, plays Gel Dove, the retired English bank robber, 
who's living it up large in Spain when he's called back for one last job, and that call back comes from the mad Don Logan, who goes there in person. Uh, things happen. I don't want to be a spoiler because it's so well worth seeing. Cinematography in it wins awards. One of the great scenes ever is the underwater bank robbery scene, which is famous in cinematography. It is a movie full of quotable quotes. The To think that Ben Kingsley was Gandhi and then he played Don Logan, one of the most menacing characters in TV, in movie history. It's loved. It is a, it's more than a cult classic. It's in many people's, many critics' list of all-time great gangster movies. But if you love your East End crime, then this is the movie for you. Okay, I'll, I'll be totally honest. I don't think I've heard of it. Sexy Beast. Yeah, okay. Oh, it is. I'll get onto it. You will love it from the, the opening credits to the to the tunes of the Stranglers. Um, you know that. Oh, the one you used to play on your show every yeah. so can't the, remember the name yeah, of. It's, um, I can't remember the name of that track either. Oh. Anyway, let's not do this. Yeah, anyhow. anyhow. <laughs> uh, what, what is that? You know what, Vody? You need to take some notes what, from s- time to time. No, no, no. I know you that. store a lot upstairs, but you can't Pe- store it all. Okay, it's Stranglers, and the song is called Peaches. Peaches, okay. Is that off the... Uh, no, I don't know what album's on. Uh, Rattus, Norvig, uh, what's the, whatever that album is. Um, all right, there are movies. Okay, we've got to keep a move on here. TV, uh, very enthusiastic about this choice. I didn't, likewise, I didn't find a lot to um, tickle my fancy in 2000. However, this, and I'll put my hand up here, I came to this a long, long time later. In fact, probably about 17, 18 years later. I knew of its existence. I had watched one episode, but for whatever reason, didn't go back to it until a couple of years ago. I now am a devotee of this season and eager, a series and I'm eagerly devouring the current season now, which is as good as ever. Um, and I'm talking about Curb Your Enthusiasm, Finey, Larry David, playing himself. Um, and uh, one of the few series I've seen which has actually got better with time. I think it's just got funnier and funnier. Uh, Larry David plays himself, a, a comedy writer, um, his uh, other characters, Jeff Green, uh, played by Jeff Garland, who is his manager. His wife, uh, Cheryl David, who played by Cheryl Hines. Yes, all the same names, Christian names. Uh, Jeff's wife, the famously shrill and potty-mouthed Susie Green, played by Susie Essman. And uh, a character added later in the show, but uh, a much-loved character who is... It uh, just makes me laugh thinking about him. Leon Black, played by J.B. Smoove, who ends up somewhat unlikely uh, uh, living with Larry. Um, it is, uh, what would you say about Kirby Enthusiasm? It's a bit like Seinfeld. It's like a, a sort of slightly messier um, uh, sort of uh, ruder version of Seinfeld, certainly a lot of expletives in the show. Larry basically manages to offend everyone. He's his own worst enemy, I think, finally, because he just uh, he's one of those people, and he reminds me of me far too frequently, who sees something and that gets his goat and annoys him, and it's usually something quite trivial, and the annoyance rankles him to the point where he can't let it go and you think he's going to let it go, but then he'll always double back and take it up with someone and um, uh, 
catalogue of ill fortune ensues as a result of that. Well, he calls himself, describes himself as a social assassin. And that's what he is. <laughs> uh, a, a comedy of errors, I, I, I think it is. So a lot of it is about stuff-ups and mix-ups and um, unfortunate coincidences. And uh, Larry is one of those characters who makes you cringe sometimes at just his inappropriateness, but uh, he will sort of verbalise what a lot of us are thinking but dare not say. And if that doesn't sound enticing enough, um, just watch it for the dialogue and, and some of the, the verbal interplay and some of the scenarios. I think the first one I ever watched wasn't the first episode of season one, but it was um, it was where he mistakenly or, or by accident sort of ends up at the party of a guy who used to be a porno actor. Uh, porno Gill, I think it's called. It's about episode three of season one. And I watched that and I thought, Jesus, i got to get... And then I just got hooked. It, it is very, very funny. Season 10 currently going at the moment. And um, it's a ripper. So if you haven't seen it, hunt it down and uh, have a look. Uh, much mirth will ensue. Um, just, and like Arch of last week, some series are sort of episodic where each episode stands alone. Yep. And others have a thread through it. And there is one series where they do the Seinfeld reunion. So if you like Seinfeld, yeah. there's one series with all the Seinfeld actors in it. There's a lot of um, well-known, like Ted Danson as a recurring uh, theme, and they play themselves and they, they take the piss out of themselves, so it's good value. Um, all right, your shot. Okay, this is a program that I've got to admit I didn't really watch a hell of a lot of. I saw some episodes, so you're going to say, well, hang on, if you didn't see all of it, why do you love it? Why, why are you naming it? Because it would become so important in comedy and it spawned something that I absolutely adore and that is The Ali G Show. Oh, yeah. Now, this is Sasha Baron Cohen's not his foray into TV, but certainly internationally, it is his unleashing of the characters that would make him world famous. The three characters that appear on the show and all of them do work off this... Um, to different degrees, uh, candid camera type catching citizens or, or lawmakers or just people, vulnerable people because of their beliefs, um, in a bit of a ca- in a bit of a candid camera situation where they think the person they're talking to is genuine, where in fact it's a comedian. And the characters are Ali G himself and uh, Bruno, not a character I love that much, the Austrian. Uh, the gay Austrian fashion fashionista and the one that everybody, I think, loves most, Borat. And it went for four seasons. It, one of the series, is he goes to the United States and that's really where Borat is unleashed as what we would learn to find amazing in the movie. I think it's... Look, he's gone on to be an incredible comedic power and to think that... He was still able to get away with it as recently as 2018 in the United States with, I think, This Is America or that that highly charged political and very controversial series where he plays in part an Israeli, uh, supposed to be an Israeli agent, getting American, current American politicians to agree and support the idea of arming preschool children with guns. So he's a social commentator, brilliant comedian, and the Ali G show, which started in 2000, is f- the kicking off point of the Sasha Baron Cohen fame that we know. 
Good choice. Good choice. That is the year 2000 in music, movies and TV. And uh, that leaves just one segment, Finey, and it's that segment. Let's do it. On Footyology, the rant off. Right, a lot of talk today. Let's uh, not waste any more time. Straight into the rant off, Finey. I'm ready to go. You count me in. Three, two, one. I'm pissed off with the past week, Finey. Frankly, it's been a stinker on virtually any level you care to imagine. I think Footyology's own contributor, Ned Balm, summed it up best a few days ago when he tweeted, Between the RSL and WA giving the middle finger to Indigenous Australians, children being bullied to the brink of suicide, and some numpty dullard named Bettina, it's been a pretty horrid week for common decency in Australia. That, mind you, was even before the subject of that bullying, nine-year-old Quaden Bales, was wrongly accused of having orchestrated a media hoax, one which claimed he was really 18 years old. And that was pretty low indeed, even by social media troll standards. And his tweet didn't even touch on the St Kevin's scandal, which forced the resignation of a principal and a couple of teachers, and saw a couple of already notorious media commentators in Andrew Bolt and Jared Henderson sink to even new lows. For those blissfully unaware of these putrid events, first off, the RSL in WA decided to ban the welcome to country and flying of the Aboriginal flag at all its Anzac and Remembrance Day services, causing such outrage it was forced to perform a rapid backflip. Young Quaden was the subject of a heart-wrenching video in which, after relentless bullying, he threatened to kill himself. The reaction to that was indeed heartwarming, but of course that didn't account for the resultant pack of assorted assholes who claimed it was all a money-making scam. Incorrect, it wasn't. The disgraceful covering up of attempted acts of pedophilia at St Kevin's was brilliantly reported by Four Corners, but far from contrition, the school initially sought to ride out the storm. Worse, we'd find Bolton Henderson apologising on behalf of the principal who unbelievably gave the accused, in the case, a character reference. Perhaps incredibly, even those two serial apologists for pedophiles were forced to then apologise to the brave victim, Paris Street. The Bettina is, of course, sham psychologist and serial attention seeker Bettina Arndt who somehow managed to turn the nightmarish murder of a Brisbane woman and her three children by her deranged, estranged ex-husband into an anti-feminist trope. As we all know, social media at times can be a bit of a cesspit, appealing to the worst in people. To that end, perhaps the backlash even to a brave kid like Quaden shouldn't have surprised. But mainstream media folk who continue to insist that their more commercial platforms are any nobler than Twitter or Facebook, frankly, are kidding themselves. The disgraceful aunt, who's somewhat, somehow recently received an Australia Day honour, is a regular go-to guest for clickbaiting TV breakfast shows. And who did one of those shows? Uh, yes, you, Sunrise, turned to to discuss the horrific Brisbane murder. None other than serial misogynist, serial abuser of Rosie Batty and another desperate attention seeker in that pathetic former Labor leader, Mark Latham. Yep, sensitive stuff, guys. Just the sort of apologist for domestic violence a horrible tragedy deserved. And that is on free-to-air TV, not even the tornado of hate, bigotry and general vitriol spewed forth by a series of opportunistic grifters on Foxtel Sky News. 
Look, we know being a professional media asshole is a successful business model these days. I mean, Kyle Sandilands is now on something like $7 million a year for being arguably the nastiest and certainly one of the most ignorant people in the country. But it's not an example the general populace at large needs to rush to emulate, Finey. I certainly hope that the events of the past week are an anomaly and not a disturbing example of what is to become the norm. Because we like to tell ourselves repeatedly we're great people living in a great country. Call me a cynic, Finey, but I reckon it's time Australia as a whole started to walk the talk to that end a little more convincingly than it has done lately. Yeah, well, you've put a dampener on my week now. Sorry, but it's just there's so many disgusting episodes, I, I just ended up losing count. Um, yeah, we haven't covered ourselves in glory uh, to uh, a large extent, I think, over the last seven days. All right, your job is to make us feel better with your rant. Three, two, one, rant. Oh, it was dripping off the walls, wasn't it, on Thursday? You couldn't turn on the radio, pick up a newspaper or click on anything to do with football online without getting Moorabbin stories as the return to Moorabbin was played out once again. St Kilda playing Hawthorne. It was great to go down Linton Street. But let me tell you, people, what I walked into was as much the old Moorabbin as Rowan Connolly and I are uh, uh, models or front page or page three cheesecake. The truth is, it wasn't Moorabbin. It was a ground located where Moorabbin once was. In fact, I'll tell you a story very quickly. My parents enjoyed driving me around Elwood to show me the house that I was conceived in, or the flat I was conceived in, or where I was conceived in, born in McKinnon, conceived in Elwood. It always had me bemused that I was conceived in a coin laundrette. Because, of course, no longer a block of flats, that is now where I was conceived somewhere in that space. And so it is with Moorabbin. That beautiful playing surface, bowling green-like, after three days of constant rain, that wasn't Moorabbin. The genteel, sloping, grassy knoll, good for shooting American presidents, but certainly not the animal enclosure. And behind the goals, a lovely function centre called the Junction, a throwback to another home ground, which was as much the area behind the goals at the South Road end as, I guess, I don't know, Met Stadium or Wembley. This was where Moorabbin was. But any fond memories are just those memories. What's there now is a nice facility for a few thousand people to watch practice matches and good AFLW. But she ain't Moorabbin, baby. Yes, uh, I, I haven't been there yet, but uh, they were sort of taking the piss a bit, weren't they? Sort of gentrifying exactly where the animal enclosure was. Isn't that the sort of the... The whole thing's gentrifying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let, let's just say this, Rowan. I don't remember at Moorabbin when somebody had a shot at goal, the best advice was to aim for the taco food truck. <laughs> yes. I'll tell you what, as someone who frequently stood on the opposite wing to you, yep. so of course the visiting supporters always stood on the outer wing, the noise that I always associated with Moorabbin was the banging on the tin. Yep. Yeah, and yeah. there was one game, I'm sure you were there, and it was in 85 when Essendon was at its peak and St Kilda was at its nadir. Correct. 
and uh, Essendon was doing it a on the bit. comeback. St Kilda mounted this amazing, it was something like seven goals in about 12 minutes And or do you something. know who kicked three of them? Who? To just show how unsustainable and crazy it was, who? Paul Tomei. <laughs> yes. Well, I remember the banging reaching a crescendo and, uh, of course, my boys... Uh, Steadied re- up and this banging ended. And uh, I don't think lost another game for the rest of the year. Um all right, uh, no good rant. I enjoyed it, and uh, but look, I'm sorry, mine was so sort of down, and and but it's, uh, yeah, get your act together, Australia. All right, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, we've dragged on a fair bit today, but some important stuff discussed. Um, quick thank you to our wonderful sponsors, Fanny. Love Nick Spartels. You're a great man, and you're also a bloody good builder with a great eye for detail. Just ask Dyson Heppel, Scott Pendlebury, or the wonderful football man that Mike Sheehan is how much they love their houses because they're Spartels built. West Point Property. And let me tell you, 81 years of making burgers, you must be doing something bloody right. Yes, you are, Andrews. You're the best. You're the very bloody best. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Tell us about Grays Online. Our new sponsors, Grays Online, and a magnificent offer for footyology listeners. Uh, In our episode description, you'll find the links to a couple of very special cars, a Dick Johnson Limited Edition and a Peter Brock Monaro. Check out the details of both. Uh, they what, don't would just, pre- what would you prefer, the, the Brocky or the Dick? Uh, I'd, I'd go the Brocky. I'm definitely a Holden man. I thought you'd go the Dick. Uh, no, <laughs> Grays Online don't just sell cars, though. A huge range of stuff from $2 bottles of wine to $2 million cranes. TVs, homewares, white goods, power tools, nearly all their auctions starting at just $9. Here's the deal for the Ology listeners, and I'm serious. Don't miss this deal. It's a ripper. Jump on Grays Online, have a look at what's on offer, and for any purchase over $50, they will give you $30 off just by using either of the following two voucher codes. ROCO for me, R-O-C-O, or FINEY, F-I-N-E-Y for FINEY. Go with mine, it's one fewer letters. Um, but whack either of those codes in, and any purchase over $50, you'll get $30 off. It's just sitting there waiting for you to take advantage of and you've got till the end of February so five more days get to it footyology listeners no 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 go finey in fact finey whiny because if you drink wine and I'm probably the only Australian that doesn't there are so many choices and you can spend 55 bucks and get it for 25 I'm, I'm not kidding if you like wine you must go to Grays Online. Finey, F-I-N-E-Y or Roco, R-O-C-O. They are your voucher codes. Whack them in. $30 off any purchase over $50, but you've only got another five days to do it till the end of February. A terrific offer, and once again, very thankful to Grays Online for their support. That's it, Finey. Big show this week. Now, I'm a, a little bit devastated here because you heard me enthuse about at the drive-ins relationship at command. I was so looking forward to playing a song off it, but... You gave way last week, so I've had two in a row. So it's your turn. What are we going out with? You know what? I've just decided something. First of all, if you want to hear thrash metal, dig by Mudvayne. It's fun, but I don't think everybody would love it. And I just cannot stand to see you upset after that. After your rant, you're you're in a sad <laughs> enough place as it is. So let's have some at the driving. Oh, that's very gracious of you. Okay, uh, I'm going with the big. Uh, that's great, Fanny. I appreciate it. Um, we will finish off this week. This is such a good album. If you haven't heard it, check it out. This is the hit single of um, Relationship of Command by At the Driving. One Arm Scissor. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
Amputations, winter glare, rain, shit, I've 